a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 86 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Hurleman, and with me, like the torturous desires of Demigol himself, the EU guru, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's a little smoky here, but we're making do. How you been, man? Oh, man. Work resumed this week. So between Jody starting up a new job and her schedule and then my schedule, it's it's been hectic. It's it's the hurry up and wait routine. If you're ever in education, then understand that what they call pre-planning days, the stuff that happens with the teachers before the students ever show up, are going to take you days and days. In this case, we got like a week and a half, and it's a whole lot of make sure you get in there and get ready. And then either you have a lot of meetings or you have no meetings, it seems like. There's nothing in between. So you wind up getting stuff done and just kind of sitting around. I swear I spent probably uh, two hours yesterday sitting there working on tweaking the StarWarsFanWars.com website stuff um, so that I can be ready when the next uh, Star Wars Timeline Gold comes up, which will be out by the time everybody hears this because I'm releasing it uh, uh, late tonight. It's the August 4th, 2013 edition. But seriously, there's just a lot of nothing to do and a whole lot of time in which to do it. Well, that kind of sounds like celebration planning right there. I mean, by the time this episode releases, the tickets for the next celebration in 2015 will be on sale, even though you won't be able to reserve a hotel or anything else. But you can have those tickets bought now, as of August 7th. Let me say again, thank you so much, Lucasfilm, for deciding to do your celebrations at times where it's absolutely impossible for me to attend. Even my cat yeah. underneath, I don't know if you can hear it, even the cat underneath the tail is like, wow, wow. Like, I did. That's I did. right. Like, that's right. You tell him. <laughs> that is great. Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. Now this episode, we continue to look at Dark Horse Comics' ongoing run of Knights of the Old Republic, with Volume 2, Flashpoint, by John Jackson Miller. Consider this your pre-spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. Now as is our fashion, we're going to toss you spoiler-shy folks a quick spoiler-free rundown before we go too deep. So for you, Beyonders, here we go. That's right, and this trade paperback, Flashpoint, it's volume two of Knights of the Old Republic, but it's not just the Flashpoint story. If you go through the way that they were released, issues seven and eight were Flashpoints parts one and two. 
And then they had the interlude issue, which was uh, Flashpoint Interlude Homecoming, which was issue number nine. Then they finished up the actual Flashpoint storyline with Flashpoint Part 3 and issue 10. And then in that same trade paperback, you have the two-part story Reunion, which was issues 11 and 12. And in the trade paperback, they take the interlude and the third part of Flashpoint and flip them so it makes a little more sense the way they're put together. So if you've got the trade paperback, you're looking at issues 7, 8, 10, 9, 11, 12. And I gotta say, this really... This is an, an era of this series that I was not all that fond of at the time. It's something that you really need to see play out later to get a good sense of. It's kind of like, and I make this comparison a lot when we're talking about John Jackson Miller, it's kind of like Babylon 5. In Babylon 5, when you get to Season 2, you see the emergence of the shadows. Season 3, you've got the Shadow War going on. Season 5, the Shadow War is, is wrapping up. You see the Earth Civil War and whatnot. A lot of stuff has been built, and a lot of the seeds for that were planted back in Season 1. But if you just watch Season 1 by itself, it wouldn't feel like there was much of an arcing, or an overarching story arc to a lot of what you were seeing, only to realize later that, yes, there were a bunch of threads there that get tied into a knot later on. It's just that all we were seeing were the ends of the threads, so to us, they looked like separate little bits. Uh, after the greatness that was commencement, I remember reading these and not being all that thrilled. The stuff with Flashpoint itself, it's all right, and it introduces a lot of cool new stuff, but we didn't know that at the time. Uh, same thing with Reunion. It's introducing characters we're going to see quite a bit, but... Not really a big deal to me at the time. Honestly, of this entire set of, what is it, six issues, I gotta say the only one that really stood out to me originally, and the one that still stands out to me as a very important issue in and of itself, is number nine, the homecoming flashpoint interlude that gives us a lot of background on Lucian. So this is a trade paperback that if you were to pick it up, understand you're not gonna get the the knockdown, drag-out awesomeness that you get with some of the other arcs in Knights of the Old Republic. I mean, it's good. It's not bad. It's just that it's not quite as over-the-top good as some of the other stuff like Commencement, and you really are seeing foundations being laid here, connective tissue being put together here, rather than something where you're going to feel like this by itself is as satisfying as some of the other arcs or trade paperbacks. Yeah, I, I really enjoy how this trade goes about establishing the different stories. I mean, it, it flat out tells you when you're in Homecoming, right out the gate. It gives you kind of like one of the first covers for it, and then jumps in the next page. It says Flashpoint. It's got the little uh, the synopsis that you get in all those single issues, you know. In the Old Republic, the Jedi Knights form the backbone of law and order, just as they would nearly 4,000 years later in Anakin Skywalker's time. But there are factions within the Jedi, including a cabal that fears young Zane Carrick, may unleash the Sith upon the galaxy. Framed by his former masters for murder, Zane becomes a fugitive. Joined by Griff, a literal partner in crime, they take flight aboard the ramshackle last resort. With the addled inventor Camper, his fierce protector Jarrell, and the confused droid Elby. To escape the reach of the law, they make for the battlefront where Mandalorian and Republic forces have been bogged down. But the chaos they left behind on Terrace may have repercussions for the war itself. And, you know, then when they go from there and they jump into the next one, I mean, it, again, it is very well established. You know exactly when you get to Homecoming. Although it doesn't have the synopsis, it does have a little spot that tells you, okay, you're now in Homecoming. Same with Reunion. So when suddenly the art style switches a little bit for each one, you kind of have an idea why. Although as we get to Reunion, it really does a major jump halfway through that one. I don't really care for the last 
half of the art there. That's kind of like the beginning of the hopscotch artists. Uh, you know, I, I believe Brian Ching, he's he's the one I really enjoy his stuff for KOTOR. His has the, the signature KOTOR feel for me. Uh, but this story, you know, like Nathan said, it's one of those exactly like Babylon 5. Good good way to put it there. Uh, it's a needed story if you're reading the overall arc. I, I, I enjoy Flashpoint a lot more when I'm sitting down and I'm going through a KOTOR, you know, uh, marathon. Um, there's, it, it feels like a book, you know, when you grab it and you, just rereading it just for this, it, it kind of feels like it doesn't quite fit because there's a lot of stuff going on that you don't realize it's building the foundations. But once you get there, when you get to the later issues, you'll come back to this and be like, oh my God, that I remember that this was an issue where some people picked up on certain things right away, which we'll get to in the spoiler half. But for most of us that are like me and a little more oblivious to things your first time around, you came back later and it was like, whoa, your job was hanging down. And like, that happened? And I didn't even notice it? What? Kind of had a uh, very John Jackson Miller Kenobi feel if uh, you've happened to read that by the time you're listening to this. Although many of you probably haven't yet. That said, here's your point of no return. There will be spoilers ahead, Beyonders. Make your jump to light speed now. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. This is a story that really doesn't feel quite as connected as some of the other issues will. It, it is connected, but it doesn't feel like that when you're first reading it. I would actually suggest, as you're reading these, if you are rereading them, and the big... Uh, surprise later on that we will, of course, have to spoil here in order to talk about it, uh, has been revealed to you as far as one of the new characters introduced into this arc, Roland Dyer and whatnot, um, then what you should probably do is go on suvudu.com, which is where they've taken a lot of the short stories that were on hyperspace and the starwars.com website in general, and they've taken those and republished them there online. Because there's one by John Jackson Miller called The Secret Journal of Dr. Demigol. And The Secret Journal of Dr. Demigol is literally what it sounds like. It is a running journal by the Mandalorian so-called mad scientist Demigol. Or Demarogol, I think is how uh, uh, it's said properly. But he is this mad scientist we meet on Flashpoint. And he winds up playing a huge role throughout the rest of the series, though you don't realize it quite at the time, until his story in a lot of ways is the bulk of the final arc. His story and Jeriel's story form the final arc of the series. And what he's done is he's done, John Jackson Miller that is, has done this journal that covers the entire series. So we know what's going on immediately prior to Flashpoint, all the way up to what's going on in that final arc as more and more is revealed. It is spoilerish because you know some information about the character in there before you see it in the comic series. But you can very easily keep track of where the comic series fits with the journal. Because if you look, in the journal, everything has a, a, an entry number. Entry number uh, 6005 or entry number 6124, right? If you look at those numbers... The first number and the last number don't really mean much of anything except just to help you put them in chronological order. But the two numbers in the middle of that four digits tell you which issue of Knights of the Old Republic this journal entry either takes place immediately before, immediately after, or during. So which issue is it tied into? And in that sense, there's a lot more depth to some of the stuff that we're seeing in the background 
that he couldn't really deal with because doing so would have revealed one of the big secrets of this series. So I would definitely suggest some parallel reading here, especially if you already know the big secrets. So you want to just get the, the fullest experience out of reading this series possible. You know, I like how it, it jumps right in and you're watching how Zane's kind of falling in with Griff and the whole mastermind complex uh, that he's got going on. I mean, they go to uh, uh, Vanco, which is a mining colony on the fringe of Republic-controlled space, and they basically pull a scam. You know, they're up to shenanigans, which is great. I mean, you know, Zane comes in and he, he's got this whole refugee look and the miners are kind of like, you know, going to give him a hard time. You need to go to the other side of the planet to get to where you need to be. And then, of course, you know, Jarrell shows up hologram she's kind of got the blindfold on she's trying to pretend to be a jedi and she sells it she says the mandalorians are there and all this and of course you know classic uh, zane luck in the midst of it all they actually pull off their scam they're in the middle of taking all the goods that they need and the mandalorians really invade uh this is what i like about this I, i like the mandalorians i've always enjoyed the mandalorian tale and John brings him in. John, at this point, is kind of like the pre-Karen Travis. Uh, you know, he's giving us Mandalorians in an era that they are big, but we really know nothing about them. Uh, we're starting to see more how these Mandalorians tie in with the Mandalorians from the Tales of the Jedi, uh, with Yulik Queldrama, how he ended up luring the Mandalore in. Uh, we see Roland Dyer talking also about how the, the battle just doesn't seem right, which, you know, these are those pieces that Nathan talks about that they don't seem like much now, but in the greater picture, it tells you quite a bit, which is why I like going back and rereading these, you know, because you get that that fuller picture and then you come back and you read these again and you're just like, oh, man, how did I miss that? Well, you missed it because it, it was so much information that came at you in this issue that without that fuller picture, you really didn't know what was tying to what. You knew that there were these ropes. You knew that they were extending away from your ship, but you didn't realize that they were tied to moorings. And those moorings were great plot elements. And that's something John has always done that I have enjoyed. He doesn't make you wait forever. But he does make you wait, and he will string out these little plot threads and lace them back together just a little at a time, just enough to keep you satisfied and constantly wondering about those one or two other ones that just kind of nagle at the back of your mind. And then at the end, oh, there's that big epiphany, John Jackson Miller style. And this one, I I think this one probably has the most out of all the different volumes. This one has... I don't know, it's kind of like the shatter point, if you will, of all the plot threads. I mean, you don't realize how many are there at the time, but when you get there at the end and you come back, you're like, holy crud, there are so many here. Um, I don't know, when I get back to, to Roland's character and and by the time they get to Flashpoint and all that that's going on, I mean, some of it happens so fast you don't even realize that it's happened, like, like the swap. I, I'll just call it the swap for now until we get to the bigger spoiler of it. Uh, but they got a lot of the talk between Mandalorian the Mandalorian, the Mandalore himself, uh, one of the guys, he's talking about how uh, their push into the galaxy needed to them to take Vanco. Uh, he goes, it's working, Mandalore. The Republic fleet's left flank has split the, uh, to cover Vanco, clearing the way for our main thrust. And of course, you know, Mandalore, I, I love that they got the Neo-Crusader armor and all that, and they're kind of making the, tr- the transition there from what you see in the KOTOR game, from what you saw in the Tales of the Jedi and stuff. And he's just like, then the path to Terrace is clear. At last, even Admiral Veltra cannot mine the frontier and the home front at the same time. What to Venko itself? We're splitting up an orbital screen so the main force can engage the major settlements on the day side. On the night side, the first shock troops report minimal resistance from the mining camps. But there's something odd. One camp seems to evacuate it before they knew we were coming. Impossible as that seems. 
Our troops there report they're in pursuit of what appears to be smugglers. And they took a live Jedi of all things. All alone there. And I love, you know, this is where they, they pretty much send all the, the Mandalorians after Jarrell because they think she's a Jedi. And, you know, it, it adds to that depth of Zane's character because you can kind of gather, gather, you can gather at this point that he's got a crush for Jarrell. And so when the Mandalorians come and try to take her, like, you know, it definitely, he's he has a total moment of panic there, which is the driving force of why they need to get to Flashpoint because Demigal is doing experiments. He's their lead biologist, which basically means I cut people up to find out what's making them tick. So he's gathering Jedi, and there's that whole side plot there that, that continues to build all the way up into uh, KOTOR War, you know, where we still see the Mandalorians are still messing with Jedi and trying to come up with a Mandalorian Jedi of their own. But the drive there is to get Jarrell back. So the story is still pushing itself forward for the characters, but it's also pushing the era forward because you know we know that this war between the jedi and the mandalorians and the jedi and the republic and and all this is going to back and forth you know i mean the jedi are wanting to stay back yet you've got this group this contingent of jedi that are saying hey we got to go to war we got to stop this we've got to take back what these mandalorians have already taken from us i i love the way that this is building up and the way it's done through the story it's great that is why this issue is a fun issue i think this storyline it's it's one of the ones that left me with a lot of I guess, sort of doubts as far as where the series was going to go because it felt very self-contained, only to wind up not being so uh, once you see kind of everything put together. Uh, we've got that suggestion here by Roland Dyer, who is the Mandalorian warrior that we meet that we think is part of the crew for much of this series. Um, Roland Dyer's whole idea that, you know, the Mandalorians usually are very straightforward in their attacks. They don't do a lot of plotting behind the scenes to make stuff happen. It just doesn't quite seem right. We find much, much later in the Revan novel why that is the case, how the Sith Empire kind of goaded the Mandalorians into action to test the Republic's defenses and whatnot. Uh, we get to see, again, as one of the Jedi prisoners, we get to see Squint. Now, we will eventually find that Squint is the man, Alex Quinquar Gesimus, who becomes Darth Malak. Um, but right now, he's just Squint. We don't even have his full name unless you've read I believe issue number zero gave what his full name was back in Crossroads. So he's being set up here in this case. They're actually going to set up Revan in that interlude issue that we'll talk about. So we've got kind of both of them being set up at the time. This is in an era in which there really was a lot of questions at the time. We had the KOTOR games and we had Tales of the Jedi before it. And the KOTOR games kind of set up some of the bridging material like the Mandalorian Wars, but it was all very vague. And now we're getting some specifics but I remember at the time there was a lot of confusion. Okay, have the, has the Mandalorian War started? Has it started in the Outer Rim and it's just not gotten to the heart of the Republic? Have they attacked non-Republic worlds yet? How does this fit in with all that backstory that we got within the KOTOR game? And eventually it does all wind up fitting in. But I remember this being very confusing at the time, trying to figure out exactly how this fit in with uh, the previous information. Uh, we also, in this case, uh, get the whole issue of... Uh, Demigol and the experiments on the Jedi. And we'll find, and this is something that gets delved into a little bit in that secret journal of Dr. Demigol also, that there's kind of this weird approach of how should one approach the Jedi. You've got people like Pulsifer, who is the assistant, uh, not by his choice, but the assistant to Demigol. Demigol is a man of science, wants to find a scientific basis for the Jedi's abilities. Pulsifer who will show up later in the series, and I believe shows up here as his aide. Um, Pulsifer is someone who actually believes that it is probably all mystical 
somehow. And we know now, thanks to the midichlorians and whatnot, it's kind of a little bit of, of both. Um, the stated goal by Demigol is that the Mandalorians want to be able to understand where the Jedi's abilities come from so that they can counteract them, so they can work against them. But you've also got that broader sense there when you start looking towards KOTOR War that there is a faction within the Mandalorians who would like to see Mandalorian Jedi. So co-opting the abilities or co-opting Jedi to add them to their ranks. Demogol himself here, at the time, he looks like just another mad scientist. Oh, look, it's Dr. Frickin' Frankenstein in Mandalorian armor. And it just seems like he's there just to torture and whatnot, to do experiments. He's the Dr. Mengele character, but... You don't really get much of a sense of what the purpose is aside from him just being a villain. Again, a lot of the backstory, a lot of the foundation of the series is still being laid since this is only the second arc. Only for us to realize later that Demigol's experiments and his, his desire to focus on Jedi subjects, it's not just for the Mandalorians. This is a man, uh, Antos Wirik, who has been doing such experiments for decades. Um, we will find that it ties very closely into some other storylines, including... Uh, him recognizing, eventually realizing who Jeriel actually is uh, in relation to him and his own background. It's one of those storylines that's going to be built over many, many arcs. And when you get to the to Vindication, which feels like it is the pinnacle of this series and the culminating arc of all of the first storylines, it almost feels like a reset where you then see the buildup of new storylines up to the final issue. Only that's not really the case. Because there are quite a few story threads for the back half of this series being laid right here. But that's not something we tended to see with Star Wars. Star Wars comic series tended to go arc by arc and not do a lot of building. They would reference other stuff and build upon it. But it wouldn't necessarily be, oh look, uh, uh, let's lay out something in this comic series so that 10 series down the line we can pay it off. It's much more like, hey, we're doing that 10th series down the line. I'd like to tie it into something previous. Let me grab this uh, comment from 10 storylines ago and just find a way to retcon it into fitting with mine, even though it was never intended to. This is all very uh, purposeful, right down to the swap uh, that Mark mentioned. This idea that it is in this arc, and you really have to go back and look at it knowing what to look for, it is in this arc in which Roland Dyer uh, confronts Demigol and supposedly locks Demigol up inside a closet, and then goes back and, uh, and Demigol's escaped, and they take off and whatnot, only to realize that at one point, after Demigol's been locked in that locker and Roland Dyer is back uh, to check him out, that there is a swap that happens. Demigol winds up taking Roland Dyer's armor. And I, I think they handled that very well, because we see them in the last issue of Flashpoint. We see him uh, sneaking away and boarding the last resort, so he's boarding the ship with our heroes that we're tending to follow, the crew. Um, and they spend quite a bit of time in this arc, but not much until the very end, showing us Roland with his helmet off talking to the heroes. And then for the rest of this series, pretty much until the last arc, you don't see Roland with his helmet off. And I remember thinking that that was a little bit odd for the way they handled the character, but hey, he's a Mandalorian, they think of it kind of like a second skin, that's okay. But it's an interesting form of misdirection where... John Jackson Miller is basically saying, you don't need to worry. Don't, don't think, gee, I wonder what he looks like under the armor. I'll just show you. So that from then on, you assume that's what's the man underneath the armor, when really it's not. It's Demigol posing as Roland Dyer for the next, what, 40 issues just about. 
So very nice in the way it lays out new groundwork, something that definitely takes on a new light when you see it the second time around, having already read this series over. But at the time, it was certainly one where I think a lot of the nuances slipped past us, which makes it really kind of cool to go to farawaypress.com, which is John Jackson Miller's website, and read some of his notes issue to issue to see where he was going with everything. Yeah, and then that moment that you talk about where the swap happened, I mean, it's great, too, from a, 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 from a philosophical side of things, you know. This is also the moment where Alec gets the armor that Zane was wearing in the first issue. So now the prophecy is complete. The one that shall be the Sith was wearing that armor. And it's at a at crossing point because, I mean, you know, he's standing there talking kind of with Zane. Zane's walks up to him at the same time when Roland and, and Demigol walk up. But you don't realize at this point they've swapped, you know, and, and it literally like Alec looks over and he goes, what's the matter with him? And you don't realize the him he's talking to is not Demigol in the armor. That's where it's where it's dire. And Demigol responds, but you think it's dire saying he's still out of it. I was forced to strike him again while getting suited up. And of course, you know, Alec goes, that's a shame. Shame I wasn't there, I mean. Which, you know, if if you're a fan of, you know, what happened to Jason Solo with the Yuzen Vong War and the torture there, or any other Jedi who's been tortured and, and has a dark plummet, you know, we have witnessed Alec now being tortured at Demigol's hands and having a very, very darker perspective on things. Uh, you know, when, when you mentioned what Demigol's doing in there, I love one of the Jedi. When Jarrell shows up, she's like, what is this place? Dr. Demigol's waiting room. No appointments necessary. You're all Jedi. What are you doing here? Captured on Sejura. Ambushed. We were just going to look around. But it's like they knew we were coming. Glorious first outing for the Crusading Jedi volunteers, wouldn't you say? And that's when Squint shows up and gets thrown out there. No worries, guys. I'm just a bit taller, that's all. You know, trying to put on the brave face. Uh, but, you know, it, like you said, the, the whole what's going on with Demigol's character in later, I'd forgotten again most of that stuff i mean granted in in uh, homecoming we noticed that jarell uses uh the name shantique which is a name that comes up later that also ties into the demigol story there uh it, yeah that's the brilliance of this when you go back and you're looking over this after right uh you know you've read it all you know all the little tricks and the slips and trips and all that stuff that john has given you along the way you have a, a bigger appreciation for this issue uh you go back over and you're like oh Oh, cool. That's there. Oh, a little seeding of this and that. It, but it's all stuff that it, until you come back, you don't realize how much stuff John put right up there in your face. But, you know, he knows the end pie. And, and that that's something as, as someone who, who's wrote some fan fiction. That's the fun side of things when, when you can do it well, where you don't have a, a continuity error in your own stuff, where you're able to actually line it all up and get it to stick. John has been very good at that. I don't know too many John Jackson Miller created retcons or needs or errors or anything like that. I mean, Nathan, that's more your domain. But as far as I'm aware, John's done a pretty good job of keeping all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. I mean, is there anything that jumps out? No, he did a really good job of, of laying these together. There's not really much in the way of retcons that need to be done. Although, I mean, certainly you can make the argument of, well, why is the technology so different? And why is the look so different between one era and the other? Um, but I think that's more a matter of just the artist trying to lean more towards the games in that regard. And this was a very consistent arc in terms of artwork. It's Dustin Weaver doing the art for that entire arc of Flashpoint, which is nice. Uh, well, the entire regular Flashpoint arc. There is that issue number nine interlude, which was in there as a filler issue uh, instead of being right after it, specifically because they needed more time for the art, I believe, for Flashpoint. And that one's by Brian Ching. Um, but very 
nicely done, nicely set up there. <laughs> well, you know, the, those little little twists and turns. I mean, another one here is when Demigod grabs Jarrell after torturing Squint. Do Arcanians fascinate you too, Squint? So loving of science and willing to use it, he grabs her by the hair and pulls her towards him. You might close an unproductive mind. An ancient Arconian breeds new workers with human hands to reach more gems. It's hard to say what a true Arconian is anymore. These eyes, these, and he pulls her hair back over her ears. Osiak! This is interesting, yes. Definitely the girl next guard. But that's the moment where he recognizes Jarrell. I mean, if he doesn't recognize her 100%, he's got a pretty good idea. As you later learn... You know, she's not supposed to have ears like that. And as he's mentioning, you know, with the Arcanians switching the way that they're kind of created for the minds and stuff, there's a lot of genetic manipulation going on. And I remember when that first happened, I was thinking, whoa, what's going on with the Arconians? Like, I thought they were all white-eyed and four-fingered and stuff. And John explains that in a much later issue as well. But this is one of those moments where the, the interest is here in just that quick little scene where you see the ear and he pulls her back in the shock. You're just like... Oh, but when you go back and you've read the end, you come back to that, you're like, that's the moment. And they deal with that in the journal pretty well. It's journal entry number 6093, so tying into issue number 9 at first, where Demigol says, An interesting delivery. Curious thing. An Arcanian offshoot woman has arrived, brought from Vanquo by the invasion force. Evidently, she is a Jedi, because right, she was posing as one. I saw offshoots all the time on Arcania after the university was closed to species such as mine. And, of course, offshoots were both researchers and research subjects on Osadia, or however you're supposed to say that. Uh, but I have seen none since the project collapsed years ago, and my files on offshoots were lost. I'll run the full battery of tests on her when I am finished with Squint. There is much data to replace. I hope she is a hardy specimen. And then you get the beginning of his realization, uh, once the, the this uh, fake attack has happened, and it really is more of a rescue operation than an actual Republic attack, uh, entry 6107, which is tied into issue number 10. Remember those first two, or those uh, two middle numbers? Emergency. This is Demigol speaking into his personal recorder in the lab on Flashpoint. The Jedi subjects have taken control of the station. I was ambushed, struck from behind by Roland, the same runner I saw weeks ago. He must be in league with the Jedi now. I awoke in the storage area, stripped of armor. Our transmitter has been disabled. And while the knights in the ready room are hardly in fighting condition, all the sentries appear to be gone. I can see the Jedi on the security monitor. It could be moments before they come for me. I'm downloading all my research files to the data chip hidden on my thumbnail. I will go down fighting, if I must. I am no stranger to combat, but I cannot fathom losing a second research station to a surprise attack, just like Osadia. Osadia. Hold. Ding, ding, ding. That woman on the monitor. The offshoot. I saw her again earlier today. I was busy being hurried along by the traitor, but I remember... Her facial markings were strange, but she shared certain characteristics with the group of offshoot research subjects on Osadia. She would have been a child back then. Could she have survived until now? She looks the right age. Curse me, I've grown old and indolent. Comfortable in my surroundings when I should have brought her back for testing immediately. But all may not be lost. I will go down fighting, but I will win nonetheless. There is an alternative. Time is short. I must prepare. And he spends the next couple of entries with his plot to essentially load all of his information and his ability to record his journal into Roland's helmet when he gets the, the best of Roland so that he can then impersonate him and get onto the ship to keep an eye on Jeriel. He thinks that Jeriel might be one of his test subjects from back in that new generation project, as he calls it, which he names specifically back in, uh, in that journal. So it's kind of cool the way they set that up. And I guess uh, what I would say is that in this, there's a lot of different ways that Star Wars deals with prophecy 
or laying down foundations that pay things off. As I said, you don't usually see sort of the grand scheme of things, uh, J. Michael Straczynski Babylon 5-esque way of laying down story threads outside of things like this with John Jackson Miller. There are very few Star Wars authors who tend to do that. It's more of the retconning or tying things together after the fact. Um, when it comes to, to prophecies and seeing the future and whatnot and kind of having things laid down, it's not just a matter of the author. That, of course, is a theme through here, which we're going to see when we look at Homecoming Interlude, a little bit more about the Jedi Seers, the Covenant, and whatnot. But I would say that when it comes to paying off prophecy, which could misread have been, as Yoda might have said, um, or when it comes to paying off story threads, at least John Jackson Miller, when he does it, and I think this is why we're so impressed with this form of writing that he does, he pays it off, and he pays it off well. He doesn't lay down the foundation, get you curious, and then just kind of leave it. Um, when it comes to laying down hints and paying it off, I would say there are two spectrums in Star Wars. There is John Jackson Miller on one end. We're not two spectrums, two ends to the spectrum. <laughs> there's John Jackson Miller on one end, and there's Troy Denning on yes, the other. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> there's the. This is the, holy crap, I can't believe he set that up 40 issues ago. Wow, that's really cool, and boy, I didn't even realize that reference back in issue number, I don't know, 10, was going to pay off in issue number 49 or 50. Holy crap, it's Babylon 5 Season 1 all over again. With Denning, it's more of a, here's a crazy-ass vision. Now, you figure out what it means, because I really don't have any plans for it. I'm just going to kind of let it go. As I recall, uh, you may recall that in talking about Apocalypse, Troy Denning talked about how he wasn't really sure. He sort of intended for the Dark Man uh, and for the guy that fought with Luke in the, uh, uh, you know, the whole Beyond Shadows thing. He, he intended it to be Darth Crate, but it's really open for interpretation. What? Yeah, uh, that that does not work for me. If you're going to lay down the foundations, know where you're going. Um, and that is something that Miller does very well that, I don't know, maybe the reason we haven't seen it as much in Star Wars is because usually what we get is the Troy Denning style, here's a vision, here's a prophecy, here's a foundation laid, and then since we're not quite sure where the publishing is going to go, we haven't made those plans yet, we're just going to kind of play it by ear and see if we can tweak it or play it out or stretch it out uh, to fit with something else someday. The uh, Lucas model. Yeah, very much. Here, the, uh, we threw something out. Maybe this will fit with something George is doing today. <laughs> yeah, it's the whole, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, throw it against the wall and see what sticks or run up the flagpole, see if someone salutes. The only difference here is that they do it and there's like a temporal anomaly. So they're doing it, but they're waiting to see what happens five years from now. Maybe somebody <laughs> will use the thread that we laid out. Yeah. Well, another one of those little moments here is is back inside Flashpoint when uh, Demigol shows up and Jarrell goes nuts, knocks him down. This is actually after Roland and and Zane have knocked him out and taken his armor. Zane's in the armor. Jarrell knocks him onto the ground and she's on top of him, choking him. And Zane uses the Force to touch her mind and he says her name. And and in it, you know, she's got her hands around his throat. He's on his back. And you kind of see this white touch of her forehead with the word drill. And she kind of has this like realization that something happened. And she's like kind of stunned and, you know, squints like, what, what happened? You had him. She goes, I heard something. And this is the seeding of the, the force connection that they have that you will later see in the later arcs as well. You know, again, just, just the beautiful, quick one word, one image, and we're done. 
and we moved on. And he doesn't bring anything else to it. He uh, he requires you to go back with the knowledge, see that, and kind of put two and two together. Uh, or, you know, you can go to his faraway press and check out all that really cool stuff. And I, I'm with Nathan. I highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, John does it not just with those projects, but with other ones that aren't involved with Star Wars. He, he's really good at adding these little details, this creativeness of being the writer and the creator. Uh, you know, he gives you that inside background, that stuff that you wouldn't normally get. That You're just like, wow, John, you're genius. I love you. Uh, get a room. No. Um, so that moves us, though, from Flashpoint into its interlude. And the interlude was... Again, at the time, I thought the most interesting of the stories that we got in what amounts to this trade paperback, not knowing what was going to come later. And it's basically background on Lucian and on the Jedi Covenant. I mean, so far they've been the villains, and we know they saw a prophecy, or they saw a vision where they think Zane may have been one of the students uh, who was possibly going to, you know, bring back the Sith and start another Sith war and all this stuff. You know, what's the point of that? What's the point of the visions? Why were they together in the first place? Who put them together in the first place? And so on and so on. All these questions kind of hanging up in the air. And what we get instead with Homecoming, instead of getting something that is entirely set in the present, which most of the stories in Knights of the Old Republic will be, we get something that jumps back and forth between the present and individual flashbacks to build up the background of Lucian. Uh, we start a long time ago on Coruscant, uh, where we meet little young Lucian, but we don't really know a whole lot beyond that at this point. At first, we just kind of see him and realize, wow, this is cool, we're going to get some background on Lucian. We transfer to the present day, and it is after what happened on Terrace. It's after the Padawans have been killed and whatnot. So at this point, we know that, uh, you know, we know some of the recent activities of the Covenant. And Lucian is being called to meet with, uh, supposedly, being called to meet with his mother. Uh, we flash back again. We see the first meeting of Lucian and his mother, uh, Lady Krinda. I always try to say Kendra because I had a friend named Kendra back in the day. Krinda, Lady Krinda Dre, uh, and Kanilla, uh, or Quanilla, the seer woman who is at the heart of a lot of the visions that we get with the Jedi Covenant. So we get that brief, oh look, they're meeting for the first time. Nope, yank us back to the present. In the present, we see some of the Jedi Masters who we know from the Knights of the Old Republic games speaking with, of all freaking people, and I think this may be why I thought at one point it was meant to be him <laughs> watching in the previous arc in that one panel that we got, we get to see Revan. Now Revan doesn't have a name at this point, he's just talking to the group. And he has a few choice words with Lucian and heads out talking about, you know, his mission to save Padawans and to save the Jedi from the Mandalorians, whether the Jedi will do anything about it or not. Uh, so he walks away and we are yanked back into the past again. Uh, in this case, learning a little bit more about what's going on in the background of the Dre family, about how uh, Krinda's husband, Lucian's dad, died during the Sith War. He died during the, or the Exar Kun War, it's sometimes called, during the events that we saw back in Dark Lords of the Sith and the Sith War back in Tales of the Jedi. A nice connection there, because time-wise, that kind of makes sense. That's part of why this is set so soon after that. Um, and we get to meet Hazen, right? Hazen, who is supposedly just this aide of the family, uh, who's a great help to Lady Krinda, and who is going to uh, be the teacher 
of Lucian, who doesn't have that gift for seeing the future that these other children have that have been brought uh, to be there, to together manage to see enough of the future to avoid another Sith War. But then, we're yanked back to the present again. Lucian addresses the Council. Lucian gives his BS reasons for the death of the Padawans, which we can come back to. I love the way he confesses without confessing there. Um, But he learns that they are taking the Covenant, this group of Jedi who have worked together. We learn it's not because the Jedi Council have ever purposely put them together. There's another force at work. It's Krinda and her uh, machinations, and then now that group working to try to stay together themselves. And they're going to be sent off to different places. Um, We see sort of a fracturing amongst the opinions of some members of the group. And we get to hear the thoughts about Revan, uh, where they say... uh, 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 we have Canilla saying, the further the Mandalorian stab, the more traction our colleague back there, Revan, will get. The Jedi could lose what little focus they have. Yeah, back home, reclaiming ground lost in war was the noblest cause you could have. Jermars, we called it. What is the basic word? And Lucian answers, revanchism, which is a real word, by the way. And it's irrelevant, blah, blah, blah. Revanchism, which it gives us kind of the concept behind why they eventually call him the Revanchist, which gets shortened to Revan. We still don't know what his real name was prior to all of this, unless he just happens to have been named Revan, but you would think that would be kind of obvious. Um, And of course, that brings us further back into another flashback in which we learn that basically Lucian was not really that gifted of a Jedi when it came to seeing but he was a good combatant, he had trained well with Hazen, and that he is being essentially assigned not to lead the Jedi Covenant because he's a seer, but basically to be their bodyguard, to be the one to protect them um, so that this group that has been foreseen by Krinda, who is a gifted seer, uh, can survive to stop another Sith War from happening. And we wrap up the issue with what now feels like a very important scene, and at the time, we didn't really know what to make of it, with Lucian going to supposedly meet with his mother, only it's not his mother who is waiting. He's not really sure what's happened to his mother or where she is or why she's not meeting him. We'll find out later. And he meets with Hazen, uh, who we find is sort of a cybernetic individual now that he survived the Sith War but took major damage in the process. And he is... We get a glimpse of how fanatical he is when... We see Lucian taking orders from him and some of the things that he says. Um, that, you know, Look at me! I survived through the Sith War. I know the risk better than you. And your mother and I know how best to deal with that risk. You will bring him before us. Talking about Zane. Um, it's another of these issues that sets up a lot. And I don't know, it made me kind of sympathetic to Lucian that this is a guy... It's kind of like the opposite of... Anakin Skywalker. Anakin Skywalker is the one that's pulled in at age, well, nine turning ten, around the time of the Phantom Menace. Um, he's pulled into the Jedi Order, and he's got this weight of being the Chosen One dumped on his head. And it, it affects everything about how he trains and how he views himself. You know, you will be the Chosen One. You will bring balance and whatnot. So he always feels like he's being held back. He's got these abilities, but they're not sure what to do with them. They don't trust him. They don't know about the prophecy, blah, blah, blah. In his case... He's living up to extremely high expectations that are always weighing him down. In Lucian's case, it's the opposite. His mother, because he doesn't have that gift of seeing the future, is always sort of putting him down and looking at him as less than the others around them. So he's always essentially, uh, 
it's not that he's living up to an ideal, it's that no one ever is willing to expect good things from him. They expect that, oh, he's just going to suck, no matter what. And it's one of those things you learn in education that, for the most part, students that you have will rise to expectations. If you give them solid, strong, clear expectations that are slightly above their ability, they will reach forward and they will grow through. And in fact, that's one of the, the prevailing thoughts in education right now, is that you don't create lessons for your students' ability. You create them for just a step beyond it so that you can push them and they will grow. And then if you keep doing that, they will improve more and more and more as a school year goes on. But if you set expectations very low, you're setting it for the lowest common denominator or you're just assuming that they are only going to be able to do the most basic of tasks and don't ever challenge them, you're going to wind up with a student who grows bored with education, may be competent in what they can do, but never really get a chance to be all that they can be, so to speak. And that, that is thought of as detrimental to the child, to society, to the educational field. But that's exactly what Lady Krinda is doing here when it comes to Lucian. So as a teacher, this one specifically rang true with me, not just because I like to see the cool background stuff. I like history, which is what I teach, but the fact that in a lot of ways we're seeing the psychology come back into it, which is always what thrilled me about Anakin. Yeah, I would say this is this is definitely the meat for Lucian's character. I mean, I, I grew to care for him more, kind of look at him a little more in a new light. Uh, wanted to know what was going on with him. I mean, I love the first flashback, you know, the the uh, the MB droid or whatever it is. Ah, Milady Kindra, welcome. How have you been? Surviving, 9BD, surviving. I'm sorry I haven't been to the Kretsch more often. I understand, my lady. But this will be a lovely surprise for your son. He had no idea you would be visiting today. No idea. Really? I'm sorry to hear that. And she says it literally right in front of her son. And of course the droid's like, poor Lucian, you know. And then later when he's training with his mob and all them, you know, she talks about, uh, there are hardly enough Jedi to provide formal training to the best candidates, much less the more limited. Limited? Those Miraluka you invited in here, they can't even see! And she turns, and I love, I love just the styling of her face here. She looks so ticked off. They can see farther than you can, boy! If only my father's blood had been stronger, I would gladly have given my eyes and yours for you to be able to see what the Miraluka can! What I can! But it was my destiny to have both sight and second sight. It was yours to have sight alone, much like your father's. My father? My father was a great warrior! Your father is a dead warrior. If I could only have seen the evils surrounding us then, he might have. My sister might have. Master Voto might have. Leave me. I mean, she is damaged. Seriously damaged. And, you know, it reminds me of a friend of mine that, that had some damaged parents. And, you know, he went through a stint in his life where he thought he was damaged because that was all he was ever shown. You know, and, and we got to that point where it was like, you know, the fact that you're able to recognize that is a moment for you to step beyond. And Lucian never got that. I mean, he just he just fell into that, like, I, I'm just nothing, you know, and, and kind of embraced what he had. And what he had was the fighting aspect. And that, you know, we end up learning that that's kind of kind of what Hazen's crafting. You know, you get this feeling like Hazen's up to more than what you're thinking of. I mean, in the first arc, we had just one image of him. Now we've got him actually having a name. You see what's behind the hood, all that. Definitely an interesting twist there. Yeah, I like the fact that Krinda does come off as as broken in a lot of ways. It's it's another one of these situations where, you know, you can kind of, you know, you could do the Jerry Springer thing, right? You're like, it's all my parents' fault for Lucian. But at the <laughs> same time, you know, she herself was not really fit 
as a parent at this point, she was so obsessed with uh, with what she wanted, you know, as far as avoiding another war, the, the grief and loss. You got to wonder, you know, if if her husband had been a seer, if he might have seen the future and seen what she would become and been like, oh, hell no, and ran away, and maybe Lucian would never have been born. Um, Plunge the saber uh, deep! <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, one thing that stands out to me, I like the fact, I mean, she is dealing with, with loss. She's dealing with the loss of her husband, along with the loss of, of other Jedi and whatnot, and it's like she's going through the stages of grief, but she has stalled. Um, in a lot of ways, one of the things that they talk about when you come to understand like a, the the characterization of an, a, an individual who seems like they're sort of acting childish, even though they're an adult, is to look at the different stages of human development. And it's possible if you don't, at least by one theory, if you don't go through certain sort of self-actualizations or realizations about yourself and life and understanding in different stages of your development, it's like you sort of stall there for a little bit. Uh, and it's not just psychological. I mean, it's also in terms of of just the learning styles. I mean, you you have to learn, for instance, at some point, uh, as an example, object permanence. Babies love the fact that, you know, I hit it behind me, now it's in front of me. I hit it behind me, now it's in front of me. And they keep, it's like, oh my god, it disappeared forever and now it's back! Like a like an animal, you know. <laughs> Gina's um, favorite game right now. <laughs> eventually you get object permanence developing, which is this, this notion that, oh, I understand that just because I can't see it doesn't mean it no longer exists. And you have to go through that stage. And eventually you get to the point where you can really think in literal terms, then hypothetical terms. It's very hard to teach, uh, in some cases, some elements of history with the idea of, you know, the what if angle on history, which makes it so interesting sometimes to sophomores because there are some who have not hit the stage where hypothetical reasoning is really something they have a very good grasp on. Because that's one of the last things that we, we come into as far as that goes. But here, we, you can take the stages of grief, the same type of concept that there are psychological processes we go through and assume that Krinda herself has sort of stalled. It's like she went through, you get your stages, you get the denial and the isolation, the anger, the bargaining, the depression, and the acceptance. Um, we see her initially going through the denial and isolation, you know, the, the not wanting to connect with the outside world in some of the flashbacks here. Um, we see her in anger. Uh, in fact, a lot of her seems to be driven by anger at this point. Um, uh, she sort of wafts between the anger, the depression, stage four, and the middle step between those, the bargaining, the, uh, where you sort of think, you know, if only this, if only that, if only this. And you know what? You know, God, I promise I'm going to make sure that this never happens again. You know, if, I, if only I do this, spare me that. And here it's in a lot of ways her with the force being like, you know, she's making the bargain. I will make sure I set up this group of seers. They will see the future. They will make sure this never happens again, uh, as if somehow she can change fate. But while she's waffling between stages two, three, and four, seems to be past stage one, the thing with Krenda is she never seems to ever get to that fifth stage, uh, which unfortunately a lot of people in real life have trouble with, which is that acceptance. Being willing to just accept that there are some things you can't control. And in Star Wars... Isn't that the thing that is the most prevailing thing we're taught about the Force? The Force has its own will. It's the will of the Force, etc., etc. That the Force sort of guides us, and sometimes things just happen. You know, to, to use Legacy's line, we take what is given. But she isn't willing to accept that. For her, she's stuck in the anger, the depression, the grief, the bargaining, everything that comes along with losing her husband and not wanting to see other Jedi die and is never willing to let go of that. And it's that grip, very much like, you know, the, the more you tighten your grip, Tarkin, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. The more she tightens her grip on 
trying to control events, the more things will eventually get out of control and the more her own son is slipping through her fingers. Uh, I like the fact that whether it's just because it felt natural for storytelling, because it's natural for human beings to go through this kind of stuff, or John Jackson Miller was actually focusing on that specific concept, he's very much making these characters feel real, because real psychology fits the mold that we see here. They're not just, well, because they're fiction, they don't have to act like normal people would. Um, they're very grounded for characters in such a fantastic situation and universe. And I like that about Krenda. She could very well have just been the mastermind or unaffected and just aloof, just snotty with her own son. But she's not. There are layers of grief and pain that drive her throughout. It's her fuel. Liquid Schwartz, so to speak. <laughs> I will have stronger visions, master. I mean, yeah, there, there's definitely some some damage there. Uh, getting back though to uh, to the Jedi High Council Coruscant today, where we see Revan, that was a great scene. Um, you know, I, I believe that uh, the master that is talking at this moment is from Kotor Two. There, there's a moment where Atris is is talking to Revan, which I love because. In the game, you know, you have that aspect of how she didn't really care for Revan, and she's kind of like reaming him one, you know. And while your report on what you saw in Alderaan and Duxon is, of course, disturbing, nonetheless, you had no business investigating on your own. We're still rebuilding our ranks from the last war. We can't afford this kind of adventurism, even if we were supporting it. And then one of the other masters from uh, KOTOR 1, I believe, and involving other knights and padawans in your scouting missions was simply beyond reproach. And now we learn that some of them were abducted before Sergera, before the surprise attack, and after you left for Alderaan, a refugee who saw it all told us, you will find them and bring them directly back here. No diversion, no delay. There was no place for the order and the wrangling over the outer rim, and there is certainly no place for it in the wider Mandalorian War. And then, of course, you know, he walks out and there's Lucian. Well, we meet again. I'm sorry we were unable to oblige you on Terrace, but I trust you found your investigations enlightening. And then Revan speaks for the first time. You see that I was right now, don't you? The truth is written in blood. And then Dre says, I'm sorry. I'm not sure I know which truth you mean. Goodbye, Lucian Dre. I have learners to save. The High Council will see you now. And I have no idea why when I say Revan's lines, I have to say it like Batman, but that's just kind of the look and feel he gets. You know, you never see his face. You never see nose. You never see anything like that. It's pure black with the cowl up. You know, the classic brown Jedi robe. But that scene for me as a KOTOR fan was like, oh, because I was waiting for this to tie in. And I mean, granted, we don't get a direct tie in but we get lots of indirect ones. And, you know, Miller does a good job of it. Getting back into the mommy issues and stuff, I like the way it builds up that, that feeling of never never really owning up to your potential in your parents' eyes. You know, that feeling like no matter how good you're doing, there's always something you could do better and it's always them kind of pointing it out to you. I don't know. There's something about that that seems very human to me. And it gives Dre something to kind of... I don't know, to kind of latch on and call him a character you can kind of get behind. You're not quite sure if you hate him, but you're not quite sure if you love him. And you don't know which side of the fence you want to lean more towards because he's definitely got the bad guy aspect as we see in the next scene where he does that great little line that Nathan was talking about where he does the confession, non-confession. Masters of the Council, 
I did it. I'm guilty. I killed the Padawans of Terrace. At which point, of course, you just flip the page. They did a great job of keeping that at the bottom of a page. So you're like, holy crap! And he turns <laughs> yeah. like, or I might as well have. The dark side touched my Padawan and I failed to act. Of this, I stand convicted. And I remember the feeling of that, that, whoa! Oh, you slick bastard type of, of feeling. <laughs> um, it was the closest that this series came at the time to the feel of... One of my favorite scenes of the old Homicide Life on the Street. Uh, I'm actually in the process right now of rereading the book that's based on Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets by David Simon. There's a character, uh, basically he has burned down a building. He killed two people, I think it was, and left them in the building and then burned down the building to cover his tracks. But he's a really crafty guy in the interrogation room, and they're getting nowhere with him. And apparently they had found the body of a dog inside the building as well. It's just this old, run-down building. So this dog was seeking shelter there, as were the two uh, teenagers that the guy uh, had found, killed, dumped the bodies back in there, and just burned it down and all. And, you know, nothing, nothing is going well for the interrogator. And they're on their way out. Uh, he's like, okay, you can go. And the guy's getting up to walk out of the room, and just as an offhand comment, the, the detective says, why don't you kill the dog? To which point, the other guy who's walking out of the room just on reflex because it's casual conversation, answers, I didn't know the dog was in there. And it's like, boom, you know, we got your butt. You know, and it gives you that moment of just, you don't expect it in the conversation. The conversation takes a turn, and it's like it drops a bomb on you, and you're just holding your breath like, holy crap, what comes next? That's kind of the feeling that I got there, you know, the I killed the Padawans on Terrace. And you have to turn the page and go past an advertisement to get to his next line, and for a moment you're like, whoa, surely he didn't just confess. But there you go. You know, it turns out that he didn't. It's the old line of, uh, what's the line from Sequest that Lucas said? Uh, Easiest way to lie is to tell the truth except the part that really matters. Uh, in a lot <laughs> of ways, that's kind of what he's doing here. Nice. Well, and then it continues to build up the, the, the schism, if you will, between Dre's group and the Order. I mean, we will later find out that there's this whole uh, Shadow Council or whatever they're called. They got a, a really cool cryptic name for what they're going by. Uh, but he goes, Dre, talking to the Masters, I humbly ask that my fellow Masters be permitted to leave the search for Zane Garrick, so that in eradicating this menace, we might redeem ourselves in some small way for the crimes we were unable to prevent. Thank you. And of course, you know, the Master, one of the Masters from KOTOR, to lead the search? You know, I never really understood how you five kept winding up together, but it's safe to say the fruits of your collaboration have not impressed us. I don't think we need to see any more. You're all being reassigned to separate posts. An alert about Zane Carrick's group will be sent to all Jedi stations. May the Force be. And of course, you know, Rana, she kind of starts freaking out. No, Master, you can't. That's enough. If we're going to have a Jedi Council at all, then somebody somewhere is going to do what it tells them. You know, kind of getting back to the fact that Revan's got a group of Jedi that are also going counter to what this council is asking. Uh, you know, and so in that sense, you have the, the realization that the Jedi are very splintered. I mean, it's not so much just Revan's group versus this group, but even the Seers are doing their own thing, which continues as they go outside because the, the, they all start arguing amongst themselves. And of course, you know, Dre does what he can to kind of reel him back in. I mean, he's kind of like the, the, I don't know, the Hannibal Lecter of the group or the, not Hannibal Lecter, but the Hannibal from A-Team of the group. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, back in the, uh, the Dre estate, 
20 years ago, that battle where they're kind of all doing the training and Dre's kind of proving that he's more like his dad. You know, the mom comes in freaking out. Stop this! I allowed... I agreed to allow my students exercises, Hazen, but I won't have Lucian hurting them. You know, she cares more about these seers than her own son, which again gets to that aspect of Dre is damaged. But this is the part that I love the most. Hazen goes, apologies, my lady, but Lucian is every bit the fighter his father was. Master Vandar Tokar has even offered to bring him into the order on a probationary trial, of course. At this point, he is almost an adult. He looks at least 18, uh, and he's not even a Jedi. He's been being trained as one. He has been sitting here alongside these seers who are Jedi, kind of getting a, a major resentment build. The fact that the Jedi Order would take him at this age with that amount of resentment built up, the, the, the family dynamic of dysfunction between him and his mother, and he's not even a member of the Order yet, and that they'd bring him in, it again gets to that aspect of later on in the Jedi's history, them going, you know, maybe we shouldn't be bringing these kids in when they're so old with all these uh, damage, these flaws. These kids are just they're bad kids, bad eggs. And, and you know, that's kind of where you see it because – you know, he's not even a Jedi, and yet he's getting all the training as the Jedi. He's working with these seers, and all he's doing is getting bitter. So, again, it gets that aspect of which side of the fence do you put Dre? Do you feel bad for him and that he is a unfortunate villain? One that has kind of been forced into the role he has, that the bitterness is all meant to be there, and that you feel sorry for him? Or is he a character that you've lost hope for, who was hopelessly hosed from the beginning because his mom is just so bent on her own sorrow that she is letting the dark side work its way in that way? Uh, I, I like the fact that none of it, again, is spoken. It's just all there for you to interpret on your own. I mean, he's not a Jedi. He's definitely old. And yet he's being trained by Hazen, who is a failed Padawan at best. Uh, you know, again, seeds for great storytelling to come later. But not quite yet. Because then we get the two-issue arc, Reunion. And while Reunion introduces some new characters into the mix and whatnot, uh, wow. Talk about a downturn. At least in my opinion. This this is another of these arcs that, at the time, I was like, meh, let's get on to something bigger and better. And while it sets up some stuff that we need for the next big set of arcs coming up, this one, even going back and rereading it, didn't really do a whole lot for me. And, and part of it is the way the art changes in the middle of it. This is Brian Ching doing the art yeah. in the first one. And the second one has guest art by Harvey Tolabad. Bad is part of your name, sir. Um, which just makes you go, what? The first image of the issue is Rana Tay, uh, the Togruton, being angry. And, and she's got muscles all over her face sticking out. And her hands look like they're made of marshmallows or something uh, or, or she's got something crawling under her skin because it's so knobby the guy loves musculature everything is bulging bits of muscle uh except for jerial just about so if it's male it's got muscles everywhere um and by the end of the issue or i guess by the middle of the issue zane i don't know about you to me zane looks a lot like a woman by the middle part of this issue. Yeah. Like Zane's face is slowly changing to look very effeminate. It's kind of one of those... It's, it reminds me of Pat. You know Pat from Saturday Night Live? The yeah, character Pat and Chris. Both of them. You're like, wait, is Pat the guy or is Chris the guy? I don't even know, and I'm afraid to even ask. <laughs> yeah, it just... It's, it's odd. It was an, it's an odd change to it. And this is the arc that 
not only gives us Zane's father, which is all right, it's interesting, you know, gives him some money and whatnot, but it introduces, for better or worse, two characters that I really could have lived without, the Moomaw Brothers. These two Ithorians who are, are bumbling at trying to, to keep an eye on Zane's father, Arvin, uh, or uh, is it Arvin or Avrin? I went with Avrin, but you know my history when it comes to pronouncing names. <laughs> it's, it's Arvin, A-R-V-A-N. Um, Arvin basically is supposed to be watched by these two guys, and instead they kidnap him, which blows the whole idea of trying to lure Zane into a trap, even though it turns out Zane's already there, so it still kind of lures him into a trap. Um, but just, these guys, they add, it, this is the point where it's like we've got our core group of characters on the ship. We've got Jeriel, we've got Camper, we've got Zane, we've got Griff, we've got Elby, we've got uh, Roland, all as part of the crew. And now we're going to start adding superfluous characters into the mix that to me never really felt like they mattered all that much. The Moomaw brothers are being tossed in. Uh, eventually we'll get the Trandoshan, I think his name is Slisk, will wind up getting tossed in here. Just, I don't know. It starts to get into the point where you're like, okay, let's go. Let's go. And this is one of those arcs. Fortunately, yeah. after this, uh, we get the really cool, uh, the days, nights stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that plays off the stuff very well. This is kind of the transition into that. But even looking at it as a transi transition, going back and rereading it now, it really didn't do a whole lot for me. Well, it's kind of one of those arcs I would rather have skipped. Every big production, every great story that goes, you know, the Babylon Fives, the Lost, the Prison Breaks, every one of these awesome stories that have a, a beginning, middle, and end, they all have the filler episodes. And this has that feel. Uh, you know, for me, I would say that this whole, the whole homecoming aspect, all ties, or reunion, all ties into the 10th page from the end. Uh, and in that, Zane is climbing up into the Mumo Brothers uh, ship, and he's hearing Rana, and she goes, uh, actions have left us no alternative. The whole reason for bringing the boy's father on Telerath was that outsiders would have been too visible on Carrick's homeworld. Here, you could have watched indefinitely for Zane Carrick to contact his family, but now you've ruined everything. Avrin knows that, Avrin knows we were watching him, and he's seen me. You can't let him go. My associates want to wash their hands of this. Raise ship as soon as your brother returns and wait in orbit. I'm on special assignment to the Chancellor and I'll be in your neighborhood in a couple of days. I'll rendezvous with you then. And I'll take care of Avrin Carrick problem once and for all. And of course Zane goes, okay, Master Ron, you've just moved to the top of my list. That's the whole purpose of this for me. When you're reading it your first time through, the whole point of it all was for her to be moved to the top of his list. Okay, I can get behind that. Now, in the grander scheme of things, there are a little bit of tie-ins here that, that we'll get to, but that's not going to happen now. Your enjoyment of this now, all is that 10th page. That is the whole reason why you're reading these two issues, is for that moment of, okay, that's why he's made her the next target. I mean, granted, we've seen in the flashback and stuff, she's kind of a, uh, for a better lack of words, we'll just call her a, kind of a sithly female, because she's got a very, very, very uh, raw cross attitude i mean i don't know something about her just seems very venomous. like she's been that way from the beginning like every time she shows up she's just very in the throw of her passion very angry all the time and i think that that you know we get to this point it makes sense to make her the first one off she's very sithly already 
Why not just drive a lightsaber blade right through her? Well, now we've got the reason to. She's dabbling in things and ticking people off. And, you know, she's messing with family. You don't mess with family. There's that aspect of the danger for Zane. You know, not only is his life at risk, but also his parents. So now we've got to find a way to kind of close that chapter for him so he can move on and continue his hunt. That That's about all that I really got out of that. Well, we've also got a little bit more on the financial background of the Drays and how they can kind of handle things on their own because of how wealthy they are and how this all played into uh, the family lineage and whatnot there. Uh, we get some hints again as to how sort of Zane's connection to the Force is a little weird. It's like it constantly does things wrong. You even get a line from his father, uh, may the Force start doing what it's supposed to do, I guess. Uh, and they do take... Zane's family, which may have just been one of these loose ends that need to be dealt with, uh, they do manage to get Zane's family sent off to the Jedi Academy on Dantooine to help manage their finances there, which is a way of keeping them safe from the Jedi Covenant. Because certainly, you know, we're sort of trained at this point with so much EU over the years to the idea that Jedi are sort of taken away from their families uh, very early on. They don't know their family, especially once we get to around 1999 and whatnot, the EU starts to reflect that more and more and more. Um, but, you know, you do still kind of have to ask, well, wait a second. What about Zane's family? Couldn't they use them to get to him? That's one of the things that I like. Uh, that, that's It's so it, it's so obvious, and yet a lot of times we forget about it. So it's nice when they actually manage to work that in. I, I think about all the Superman stories and how relatively... Few instances there are relative to other plots against Superman uh, by enemies who know his identity to actually go after Ma and Pa Kent. It's like, wouldn't you figure that's obvious? You can't hurt the man, hurt his family. Tom Taylor, who of course also wrote uh, Invasion here, is writing the comic that ties into the Injustice Gods Among Us uh, video game, the DC Comics-based video game. I'm actually reviewing those at Invisible Gamer. And does an, a, a great job of, you know, Okay, the American government now knows they need to stop Superman. They know who Superman is. It's time to go after Ma and Pa. It's time to hit him where it hurts. You just better hope that it works. And that's kind of the same thing here. Go after Zane's family. Okay, but understand that if it doesn't work, all you've managed to do is walk up to the dragon and poke it in the eye. Or the crotch, as the case may be. Um, it's really not a good idea. All they've done is make Zane... Angrier, And in that sense, if those are the types of things this arc was meant to do, introduce a few new characters, uh, albeit not amazing characters, get Zane's family situation out of the way and address that, and uh, get uh, Ranate onto Zane's radar as one of the first ones he needs to take down, then it makes sense. The arc works, uh, even though the artwork doesn't necessarily work as well in the second issue. And I guess what I can say is at least... I guess they kind of knew what they needed to do and how much time they needed to do it. Unlike something like Dark Times, where it's like, we only have to do a little bit to advance the story, but it needs to be its own little story, so we're going to use five issues for this, when you really only have enough story for maybe one or two. Here, they're not afraid to say, it's a small amount of stuff we got to do, let's just tell a small story. Two issues ought to do it. There's no requirement that it has to be five, six issues to be able to move the plot along. Yeah, I, you know, I'm right there with you. I, I don't have too much more to say on this one. It, it was a fun read, uh, a good solid read. First time through, it's going to feel like there's a lot there to chew and process. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something to stop and think about. You know, you will probably get a lot more out of this on your next read through. 
I granted that's probably a theme with the EU. I mean, once you get that whole broader picture and come back, the little nuances they jump right out at you. This is chock full of those. I, I like how you put it, Nathan, and, and I would have said the same thing. Uh, John Jackson Miller is very much like Troy Denning, only Miller kind of delivers on those little tidbits where Denning just kind of keeps you wondering about. So grab this one, grab Flashpoint, check out some of those little nuances, see if you picked any of them up. You know, get get back, come back, check it out again, and see if you were right. Uh, you know, I missed most of the little nuances when I went through it the first time. I had no clue. Uh, I knew a couple people that did, and they were hinting at it for a long time. And like, man, I was wondering if you're ever gonna get that. I didn't want to spoil you. I was like, you should have just spoiled me. I'd have never figured it out. Uh, John's good at hiding them, and I love this story for that. Uh, it's got Mandalorian action. That's always great and good times. And you know, if you get into Demigol's story, which I really did, uh, it, it's the origin of him at this moment. I mean, this is where the character kind of steps into the comic, and you kind of get to see where he first shows up and where he's all about. Uh, really fun stuff there. Also, be sure, like Nathan said, check out the Secret uh, Journal of Demigol. That's also a fun little read. Uh, but yeah, you'll want to check this one out. Um, I, I again, I recommend checking out the trade paperback uh, in this case because it, it does the little bouncing all over the place. You wouldn't quite get that feeling like, what are they doing? Uh, you know, it's one of those that I got in the trade. I didn't get it in the singles. Uh, it's right. I'm getting close to that point where here in a minute, all I'm going to have are singles on. But, you know... From the long-term collector standpoint, going the trades is probably one of the cheaper routes. Granted, the omnibus is the best route, I would say, because you get the most read. It feels like you're sitting down to a book and you get a long read. You can't quite sit down and read it all at one setting. You almost get there with the trade paperbacks. This one, I had that feeling at times where it was like, wow, there's just so much here. i got to set it down and digest what I've read so far and come back to it. Um, this one's a little harder to sit down and read all at once. There's a lot of dialogue. You know, a lot of plots being set up and plots being driven forward and stuff. Not a bad thing, but it might not be your cup of tea. Uh, I Again, I liked it. Nathan, what about you? Yeah, the, the the overall trade paperback, I think it's something that you get a lot more out of on the second read-through, just like Mark said, especially the Flashpoint stuff. Uh, again, probably the standout issue in here is Homecoming, at least to me, and Reunion is going to be the weaker of the three storylines in here. But... As connective tissue between commencement and what's coming up, uh, this is some very necessary stuff. Even Reunion winds up playing at least somewhat of a necessary role between them. And I look forward to the next time we check this stuff out, because we'll be beginning the uh, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering, which is the days, nights uh, saga. Days of fear, nights of anger, that's D-A-Y-S and nights with an N, uh, days, D-A-Z-E, of hate knights with a K of suffering, which is one of the coolest, if nothing else, name conventions that we get in Star Wars comics, <laughs> yeah. uh, and winds up being, uh, in a lot of ways, if this is a transitional arc, you could say there's commencement, this transition, there's days, nights, then there's Vector as a transition into everything leading up to Vindication, and then the series kind of goes through another transition, heading onward towards Demons, the last story arc. So, uh, for a transitional set of stories here more solid than we see with a lot of other series but don't expect this to be the big payoff chunk of knights of the old republic there's a reason there are so many issues and so many trade paperbacks because it does build and this is certainly uh what do they call it in sports a rebuilding year this was definitely a uh, <laughs> a, a foundational chunk of time here rather than a payoff chunk
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Help us grow as a show. You can also find links to our episodes both on Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page or follow us on Twitter. They're the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore. You can explore the expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months. No questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to your audio devices, Audible just might be right for you. And of course, if you want to check out the Amazon shop that my wife and I run, it is uh, Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all is one word. Lots of interesting little bits up there, lots of comics and whatnot. If you're interested in those, just kind of cleaning out the old collection and such there. Also, be sure to check out the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold, facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold, and check out the Star Wars Timeline Gold itself over on StarWarsFanWorks.com because the 2013 release has been released as a record-breaking release. Uh, it is now almost at 2,500 pages. This release has added more content than any other previous release in terms of page count. It is stinking huge. And probably the most notable new aspect is that it now includes summaries for all the class storylines, the companion storylines, the flashpoint and operation storylines from the old Republic MMO, which should be a great boon for those uh, who have not got a chance to play the games. And yes, they are all integrated with each other into a semblance of sense. That's right, the cat just goes, yes, that's right, a semblance of sense, not total sense. That would be too much to ask for. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nate, and apparently, Trinity the... Yes, that's... I'm pointing at you. Trinity the cat, as Mungo sleeps. <laughs> Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that we'll ever see a JJM-style payoff to all of Denning's visions. Or that we're going to see another arc later, following Zane Carrick. KOTOR, Life Beyond the Shadow. You know, I gotta tell you, after the whole Days of Fear, Nights of Suffering, and all that kind of stuff, I would actually want to see, if they're going to do more miniseries, we need to have one called Huh, we need to have one called Yeah, and one called What Is It Good For? So now it can be <laughs> KOTOR, then it's KOTOR, Whoa, Huh, Yeah! And then maybe absolutely you can have like one that wraps it up. Yeah, exactly. Maybe something about a black hole or a boy go absolutely nothing. Maybe they travel to, to the planet, uh, it was it Abafar, I guess, in Clone Wars, the sunny day in the void place. They travel to the void and it's, and it's absolutely nothing. Oh, God, that'd be great. Nice.
like you're speaking, I can't hear you. <laughs> now, with all that said that I just said that you didn't hear... Donation. Dear Hope House, you have none. Away. I've donated to a new hope. Away. Generously. Go away. Okay. Um I would gladly have given my eyes and yours for what you for you to be able to see what the mirror For you to <laughs> 